Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we take a step back and look at the climate conversation. I'm Mariana Yeast-Hegler. And I'm Amy Westervelt. This week, we're doing things a little bit differently. Yeah, that's a really nice way of saying that you did a whole interview without me. (laughs) But you know you're irreplaceable. (laughs) That is the correct answer. Um, But you did have a great conversation with Sarah Miller, who also writes with Drill News, right? Yeah, that's right. She does. And she writes all over the place uh, for The Cut and The Outline and The New York Mm -hmm. Times and all these places. And Popula. And Popula, yes. And if you have read Sarah's stuff on climate, um, you probably have read her piece on Uh, Miami real estate and sea level rise. That's kind of that article went crazy last year. Uh, But I know her because we happen to both be writers who live in the same very rural county in California. So occasionally we get together to talk about writing because we're the only other writers we know in this area. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, at least there's that community, right? Because the Major media landscape is just way too East Coast. And I say that as someone who's like actually on the East Coast. So, you know, that's great. Well, I can't wait to hear what y'all talked about without me. Um, And I hope that you didn't use this opportunity to keep throwing dude into the conversation. Y'all are just going to have to wait and listen. (gasps) Oh my God, you're so young. (laughs) I feel like such a proud mom. That's awesome. Okay. Well, note that all the articles that y'all talk about are going to be linked in the Twitter as always, um, which you can follow it at Real Hot Take. And you can also find those articles in our show notes. All right. You ready to get started? Yeah, let's do it. First, we're going to hear a little bit from Sarah about how she got into climate writing in the first place and what she's been seeing on the climate story. Sarah, how did you first get into writing in general? My first job was at a gay newspaper in Philadelphia. Really? Yeah. Is that the movie movie review? No, I worked for the Philadelphia Gay News. Mm-hmm. And then I was a movie reviewer for the Philadelphia Weekly. Mm-hmm. You can read about in my piece, The English Patient. Um, it's called. It's not called The English Patient. It's called The Movie Assassin. That's right. And then I started working for Details. I was a sex columnist for Details, which is pretty funny because I actually really hate talking about sex <laughs> and and I mean I, I think, do think if you're a woman in the 90s and you were funny then people were like oh you should write about sex right I did that for a while and then I when I like 2008 that whole world like fell apart yeah and I um didn't work for a little while as a teacher's aide for a little while I basically started writing for the all mm-hmm. and then I started getting more work and then I started writing internet stuff and then I kind of was like oh I write like pretty serious personal essays like yeah well, and I think, then uh, I guess we get yeah. to the climate thing yeah um so Maria Bustillos who was the editor of Popula was like she had just been in Miami and she said somebody should really write about the real estate market here and how the flooding and the sea level, sea level rise, rise yeah. and the you know the underwater flooding the sunny day flooding mm-hmm. the sea level rise is affecting this and I, I I was like oh yeah that sounds good and First, I was kind of afraid to do it because, you know, I knew that I'd have to go to these open houses and lie. And I'm, I'm like horrible at lying, but I mean, then I'm also kind of good at it. 
Lying is not my favorite, but when it's called for, the only thing to do is jump in with both feet. So when the first agent, tall, fair, polite, bordering on stern, possibly Swiss, possibly Swedish, asked, do you live in Miami now? Do you know what kind of place you're looking to buy? I said, I live in San Francisco and my husband is in tech. I gave a coy twist to the wedding ring I'd put on in my hotel room. We're looking for a place to hang out when it gets really rainy, LOL, and then to retire to R-O-F-L-M-A-O. He either believed me or did not give a shit. The decor was beige and white or stainless steel, except for the books on the nightstand, which were jewel-toned. One of them was written by someone I dislike. I walked around the apartment as if I already owned it, as if within my lifetime, the lobby beneath us would not be decorated with kelp. We rendezvoused again on the balcony. He gestured at the unusual rainy day for this time of year, late March. Usually at night, you will be looking at the best spectacle of a sunset here, he said. He was framed by Biscayne Bay and made me think of expensive butter sitting on a blue ceramic dish. I oohed and awed over the view. Quite genuinely, because if you don't think about the fact that it's filled with thousands of pounds of post-hot Pilates ceviche poops, Biscayne Bay is breathtaking. (laughs) I asked how the flooding was. There are pump stations everywhere, and the roads were raised, he said, so all that's been fixed. Fixed, I said. Wow, amazing. So I did that, and then I started getting... I, I, I sort of thought of climate change as something that was going to happen in the, near, in the way in the future. Mm-hmm. And then I started doing that and I was like, oh, it's going to happen sooner. And then I'm like, oh, it's happening now. And now I'm like very, I'm super freaked out. It's kind of all I think about. And I try, I actually like don't read as much about it as I should because I have to ration the amount that I think about it because I am very depressive and very anxiety prone. And I get really, really, really freaked out. Yeah. I feel like that's why you're good at writing about, like, what it feels like to live now, you know, and be aware of climate change. And, like, that's kind of, like, we've talked about that a lot on the show that, like, there's been sort of a move in the last three to five years to talk about that side of it. And, like, that that is actually important for getting to the point where people can act in some way you know like right. that for a long time climate coverage was all right. about like the science and the policy right. and like you know, and I think a lot of it too is about um things people could do individually yes and I have mixed feelings about people doing that stuff I mean if people want to do stuff I try to do stuff in the sense that I I, I the thing that really bothers me is how much trash I produce I'm always like mm. oh my god I don't drive very much yeah I have a really small car. I can have a really small car. I I've been fly I've been flying less just because it feels gross to me to fly. Yeah. But I don't anyway, I don't think that I don't believe that the individual can affect yeah. have a big effect on the climate. And I it's it seems unfortunate to me that so much of climate coverage, um, like for example, the New York Times climate newsletter, a mm-hmm. lot of it is around like, what can you do to uh, you yeah. know, to lower your carbon footprint. And it's just right. like... I don't know. I feel like people will ask that. Like, what can I do? And it's like, well, really... You could chain yourself to... Well, that's the thing. I think, like, we're focused on the wrong kinds right. of individual actions. Like, we're right. focused on consumer actions. Right. Yeah, individuals can 
you know, right. uh, decide to overthrow systems, right? do that. <laughs> you right. know? My favorite sociologist to talk to is this guy, Bob Brule, and he talks constantly about how, like, the idea that any one individual's choices within a system that dictates what their choices are right. is going to have, like, that much of an impact is, you know... It's like, that's not how it works. Great. I mean, if people want to do stuff... Right, like, live by sense. your values. That's great. Everyone should do that. Yeah, I mean, know? even that. But I, to me, that's more about, like, maybe being happy. Like, it, yeah. it makes me happy when I have less trash. So exactly. I'm trying to have less trash. Okay, so on the sort of climate storytelling hmm. front, is there anything that... Essays or books or anything like that, or even movies that you've seen that you think do, like, a particularly good job of telling the story of climate or expressing how how it feels now or anything like that? Anything you can think of? So Ash Sanders with A Peace for the Believer. We talked about that one on an episode two, oh, Under okay. the Weather. Yeah, and that just resonated with me. I mean, that resonated with me so much that, like, I read it and I was just like, I can't, I, I kind of didn't read anything else about climate for like a week because it's yeah. just really tough. Yeah. And then I really, I really like drill because you're looking at how this happened yeah. in a way that is not like judging people for their choices so much as just like, this is how this has worked. Yeah. And this is how corporations have made this happen. And it's, you know, it's real reporting and it's facts and it's about how, you know, the oil companies have so much more power and yeah. money than we do. And yeah. so just that, you know, I hear so many people, even like just regular people just blaming other regular people for, for climate catastrophe. And yeah. I'm just like, you know, again, it's just not, I feel like some things like the work that you're doing just points out that that's not how it happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a perfect lead into our themes and events section, so let's get into that. Okay, I think we have to start the events and trends section with the Democratic primary. Climate has been such a huge topic throughout it, and now as we're recording, it's looking likely that Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee. Not a totally done deal yet. Yeah, I know. I know. It has a lot of climate people very concerned because Biden's climate record is not great. Yeah. So, okay. I think like folks are not really um, understanding why this feels like such a deep wound to a lot of climate people. Yeah. Like to me, it feels like such a deep wound because it felt like after the 2018 report, the IPCC report, I mean, like the the big report yeah. that came out that October that had everyone just so upset. It was the first time the scientific community had talked in such stark terms about how serious climate change was. It felt like ever since that report, people were like finally listening to climate people. And all of the mm -hmm. climate people that I saw, that I respected, um, were either in the Bernie Sanders camp or the Elizabeth Warren camp. I can't think of a mm -hmm. single one that was in the Joe Biden camp. And it just sort of felt like mm -hmm. all of these other groups were finally starting to take us seriously and, like, mm -hmm. you know, really agree that, yeah, no, this is real and we need to do something about it. And then we're here where Joe Biden creeps up from behind in the most mm -hmm. Joe Biden thing ever. Um, and it's true. He totally photobombed the primary. <laughs> <You're kidding me. laughs> 
<laughs> you know, and like took that, took it over. And it just feels like y'all weren't listening to us, were you? I know. I know. I, I like I, I highly recommend that people read this uh, Kate Aronoff story in The New Republic mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Biden's sketchy climate record. I thought she did yeah. such a good job in that story because it wasn't like a lot of people were kind of like, oh, boo, Joe Biden. Like one of his advisors is, you know, works for natural gas or whatever. Or like, you know, oh, um, he'll be too moderate, like the Obama administration in general was too moderate on climate, blah, blah, blah. But um, she does a great job of really kind of making the case that like, no, this is someone who has never really understood this issue. And also, I thought did a really good job of um, showing that it's not as simple as just like, oh, he takes money from fossil fuel companies because he doesn't actually like he signed the no fossil fuel money pledge. But that's not the only way that you can be influenced. Right. So he's had yeah. for decades, he's had advisors. He's had a little bit of a revolving door between his office and the natural gas industry. And what that's done is not just put him into the position of sort of being friends with a lot of people in that industry. But it's also really kind of indoctrinated him into this idea that natural gas is a really good and useful solution. Like he's very much on board with that whole kind of bridge fuel narrative. And that story has like – He's really grabbed onto it and and kept it going. Yeah. These people with this bridge fuel, but they never tell you where that bridge goes. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that, and Kate talks about this in her story too, the biggest thing that people forget about natural gas is that it requires totally new infrastructure. And when you build that infrastructure, it's not like, oh, it's a transition fuel. So we're just going to use it for a couple of years and then we're going to get onto solar or whatever else. It's like, uh, no, you're locked into that for like 30 years, you know? <laughs> so it actually kind of impedes transition more than it enables it. Yeah, seriously. So I, I feel like we should talk a little bit more about actually what's gone on over the past week. And I say that for selfish reasons because I don't fully understand. I know that Bernie was leaning up until we got to South Carolina. And then like right uh, after, before Super Tuesday, which was the next set of contests, um, where like, what, eight 12 states vote, something like that, like an obscene amount of states vote. Um, Right before that, the moderate wing of the Democratic Party like had the slew of endorsements for Joe Biden, like Buttigieg, Klobuchar, um, all of those people dropped out. Tulsi somehow is still in it. Like, did she forget she was running? I don't know. But all of these people dropped out and endorsed Biden. Um, and then he swept on Super Tuesday. And then the next set of elections were four states voted, I want to say. Like, I know North Dakota and a couple of other places voted. And Biden swept again. Mississippi voted and Michigan mm-hmm. um, and those states. Michigan went. was a big one. Yeah. That, that was, was a big a dis- one because Bernie won that state mm-hmm. in 2016. And um, and I think, well, there was a lot of talk about how um, – Basically, a lot of like working class white men who normally vote Democrat sat it out because they didn't like Hillary Hillary Clinton. So um, they came out for Biden in a big way, Mm -hmm. Um, which is interesting. I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk about like, you know, okay, like what can we do? Can we push Biden left and can we do this and can we do that? Uh, Are you subtweeting me? (laughs) Oh, no. No, Uh, no. Were you saying that? 
That's I so was funny. texting you yeah. to be like, what are we going to oh, do? Yes. <laughs> yes. No, I know. Like, I think a lot of people feel that way. You know, like I saw, um, I saw a lot of conversations happening on social media too, that were like, how do we basically like, how do we deal with it if mm-hmm. Biden is the nominee? Like, how do we make sure that climate people don't like get fed up and not vote? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we continue to push for change when it feels like such a defeat, all that kind of stuff. And so I do want to play a bit from uh, my interview yeah. with Sarah about this, because I thought she had like a, a good take on on that aspect yeah. of it. The, the thing that keeps coming up for, for me that I noticed that's just, whoa, it's just the extent to which we're constantly asking permission for things. Yeah. And it's like these fucking people are trying to kill you. Why the fuck are you asking them? Please don't kill me. For permission. And I'm just, I'm like, we know, <laughs> Could we you would kill me asking, slightly slower, yeah. please? And so, I had like two eggs in the, in the election basket. Yeah. You know, and I feel so sad for my friends that had like 12, you know? Yeah. But I just really want to encourage people to stop thinking about, about getting these systems that don't work to work for us. Right. I feel like we should stop asking people for permission for our own survival and the survival of our of our children and our friends and our everybody. Yeah. Um, because they're not they're not giving us permission to survive, and we need to take it back. I do think that what we have now, in the wake of what's what's happened in the last couple of weeks, is an opportunity for these people that really wanted things to change to think about how can that actually happen. Right. Yeah. How yeah. Do, how does change happen? If the exist, if it, if it butts up against the existing system. Just in the time since I recorded this conversation with Sarah, which was like a few days ago, yeah. in the middle of the week, um, now all this Corona stuff has really kicked right. up another notch. And right. that is like probably, I think, well, it's definitely going to, at a minimum, it will influence the primary insofar as that like some of them are already being delayed, like Louisiana yeah. just postponed its primary. But I think it's also kind of causing people to maybe rethink things too. Yeah, I hope so, right? Because I just feel like the two issues that are at the top of Bernie's platform are the two obviously most important issues, right? Climate change and healthcare. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a there's a debate coming tomorrow. We're recording this on Saturday, March 14th. There's another debate coming out tomorrow, March 15th yep. on Sunday. 15th, yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, I would be very happy for this to be the healthcare and climate change debate. And I'm normally Hooray! the person who's like, I'm real sick of hearing y'all talk about healthcare. Y'all talk about healthcare way too fucking much. Tomorrow, bring it on. I want to hear all the point of service and I don't know, all those other fucking words y'all use. I don't know what they mean. Like, bring it on. I want to hear about it because, Yeah. yeah, I just, we need to talk about this. And like, if you are voting on the issues, then I don't see how this is hard. Sorry, I don't mean to campaign right now. I'm not campaigning, but it just seems like an easy decision. You want to live? Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, yeah. So, okay, you were in London when this whole European travel ban. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So, funny story. Um, When you you did the interview with Sarah because I was out of the country. Yeah. Um, I was in London. Um, It was my first trip to Europe ever. Um, oh, man. And, oh. of course, it was during a pandemic. <laughs> because 
why would I go to Europe if it were North Ties? I don't know. So I originally was planning to go to Europe. Um, I was going to go to England and then I was going to go to France for like half a week and like just roam the city and be a Parisian because I've got a French middle name and you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> it seems like the thing to do. Um, a week before I go, I like get all these texts from friends being like, maybe you ought to cancel that because the Corona situation in Paris was getting a lot, you know, more serious. And I know like, yes, this is a very serious epidemic and it's a lot more serious than the flu. But from what everything I was reading as a person who's relatively, you know, youngish and not and, and in pretty good health, I was like, less afraid of getting the disease than I was of being quarantined somewhere. So mm, I didn't, I, <laughs> like that scared yeah. me half to death. So I decided to just go to London and cancel Paris. And then I woke up like four days before I was supposed to come back from London to a slew of text messages being like, are you stuck in Europe now? <laughs> I was like, imagine that being the first thing you see when you wake up in the morning. Especially because that was the thing that you were scared about in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, and no, it it, all of it came through with no context too. Like nobody was like, Trump just did, et cetera, et cetera. No, all of them were like, you're stuck in Europe. Come home now. Like everybody's freaking out. And so I changed my flight to come back that day. I was like, I'm not about, at the time it didn't apply to the UK Mm -hmm. and it didn't apply to US citizens. Um, but I wasn't about to wait for that warm to turn. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I changed my flight for that day. And as of today, Saturday, March 14th, he actually did extend those travel restrictions to the UK starting on Monday. The other thing, too, is that you had this announcement from Trump way before he was announcing anything about, you know, testing or travel bans or public health of any kind. He got right out in front there with a bailout for natural gas companies. Right. <laughs> of all the fucking solutions. Right. It's like he only has two oh. solutions to everything. It's, it's exclusions. Uh-huh. In the form of the travel restrictions yep. and then bailing out his friends because he's also bailing out the airlines. Yep. Yep. Totally. Totally. And the, the natural gas thing is unbelievable because those guys. And unforgivable. Yeah. And those guys have been in a financial freefall for the last several years because their whole fucking business doesn't make any sense economically or environmentally. Like it's, you exactly. know. So yeah. th- it's a total cover for them to be like, oh, it was coronavirus. You know, like I, I, they're. There's been some reporting recently about how a bunch of the natural gas companies um, are like have pretty massive loans that are due in like the next year. Well, guess what? Yeah. They're going to say that they can't pay them because of the coronavirus explosion. Right. You know, so like, ugh. well, and this is a good uh good example of like the whole language and storytelling thing too because i think there's been a big push to try to get people to stop even using the term natural gas because it sounds sounds better right than like fossil gas or fracked gas or whatever like it makes it sound like a renewable energy option which the oil and gas industry tried to present it as for years right Um, right so, and you know which yeah. term I'm partial to? Hmm. Fossil farts. Fossil farts. Yes, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag fossil farts. The other thing, too, is that um, there's been a bunch of stories about how I just kind of like looking at 
this comparison between coronavirus and climate change and like, you know, um, from a lot of different directions. Like, you know, A, yes, it shows that on mass people can, you know, sort of suddenly shift behavior and that governments across the world can actually coordinate on things, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah. And... You know, and that like when everybody kind of stops for a minute, emissions do go down. Um, yes, but then that's there's true. Yes, but then there's also some interesting stuff around how this could actually negatively impact some of the the push for climate action because a of course you have these bailouts for oil and gas that are going to artificially depress prices for oil and gas, which is going to you tends to lead to increased consumption. And then also, like, you don't necessarily, um, I don't know, you don't necessarily want people thinking, like, this is the best way. (laughs) You know, oh, this is great. Everybody's, like, sick and people are dying. Terrific. Like, there's, I've seen some very sort of vaguely some dark shit takes on it i've seen some dark shit um yeah like oh we do have a population problem like oh boy just stop like yeah oh yikes yeah Yeah. but i did talk to sarah about this a little bit and she had Mm -hmm. some interesting things to say so i'll play that now i'm definitely not an expert on what's going on with emissions and corona yeah but I just have one thing to say. The only the only thing I really have to say about that is it's just proof that the only thing that really affects emissions is less production. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I'm going to read you a paragraph like from this Fast Company article on exactly that. Because I think, yes, it's like real-time proof that like that's what works. Right. right? right. <laughs> so, like okay. everyone's just like, whoa, let's try this. Let's say this. Like, oh, whoa, this works. You know, like nobody fucking doing anything. And, like. Coronavirus has transformed everyday life so significantly that the effects are already visible from space. In China, where hundreds of millions of people were quarantined to help stop the spread of the disease, before and after satellite photos show pollution disappearing as work came to a standstill. In the U.S., as the number of coronavirus cases has grown quickly, companies are asking employees to work from home and canceling conferences. Schools are canceling classes. In Italy, another massive quarantine is underway. The changes have been sudden, driven by widespread recognition that it's a public health emergency, and although the window of opportunity may have already closed, a chance to prevent another deadly disease like the flu from becoming a permanent, ongoing problem. The scale of the response raises another question. What would it look like if the world responded to the climate crisis with a similar sense of urgency? I think it's a good question. It's just weird how few people see things that way. And it's also, yeah. it's a, it's really scary how few people see things that way. It's also really scary how the response to seeing things that way is like, I just hear the word pragmatic all the time. And yes, um, I probably shouldn't like take it personally. Like I feel like they're saying that I'm an idiot. And again, it's just like the ask, asking for permission, like constantly. And yeah. it's like, you have to, yeah, you have to take it from them. And it's hard to imagine, like, exactly how it's going to happen. But, I mean, I think that we've seen some evidence of how that works right now in Canada. 
That's a good segue into talking about the Wet'suwet'en protests in Canada, which have been going on for a while now. Um, actually, mm-hmm. I was surprised when I started looking into it that um, they've been going on for over a year now. Uh, they really have only... Oh, wow. Yeah. It's really only gotten kind of international media coverage in the last couple months, but this is a Yeah, I first heard about it... Yeah. Yeah. I first heard about it in like early February, I want to say. Yeah. I think it was around that same time for me too. Yeah. Yeah. So no, apparently it's been going on for a long time. And this is not the first pipeline that they have protested. So part of the wet sweat. Oh, now that doesn't surprise me. I know. Yeah. The other two have been shut down. There was a tar sands pipeline that was supposed to go through there that ended up, they ended up pulling out because of protests mostly. And then there was a natural gas pipeline that is now up in the air, but only because Chevron has sort of divested from a bunch of its natural gas assets, which is interesting yeah. because Chevron was one of the first oil and gas companies to like really go hard on natural gas. So the fact that they're like s- sort of quietly and slowly pulling out tells you something. <laughs> you know? That does tell you something. Mm-hmm. I think like, like, let's pause for a second to talk about what pipelines are, because I think this yes. might be one of those terms that like yes. people new to the conversation might not know what they are. Well, and, and there's uh, lots of different yeah. kinds. Like there's one, you know, for example, in just this territory, there was a, there was a pipeline proposed in, I think two, 2015, 2016, that was a tar sands oil pipeline. So in Alberta, Canada, they were um, getting tar sands oil, and then they wanted to pipe it all the way to Western Canada. And sometimes it's being, usually it's being piped to a refinery, and then from Mm -hmm. a refinery out to, you know, be distributed and, and whatnot. So these pipelines are hundreds of miles long, generally. Um, they often, you know, obviously they try to plan them for routes that go through less populated areas. In many, many parts of the country, those are also, uh, of this country and in Canada, those are also um, indigenous lands. And so yeah. there's been a lot of ongoing issues about land rights. Um, you Actually, you have, even in the U.S., you have some... Um, groups trying to undercut like centuries old land treaties with indigenous tribes to mm-hmm. get around kind of having to ask permission to build these pipelines. Um, you know, yeah. you've seen an explosion of protests of these pipelines in the U.S. and in Canada. Um, because on top of the fact that, you know, I think a lot of people are sort of like, we don't actually need any more natural gas or tar sands oil or crude oil or any of these things. There's also the fact that these pipelines fucking leak all the time. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what I was thinking about, right? Like, so yes. I I think um, in all of the things I've learned about in being in the climate com- in the climate movement is the ins and outs of what happens with these pipelines has been one of the most disturbing things. Like those were the reports that uh, when I edited those, um, I would really have nightmares. Yeah. Um, in particular, yeah. the tar sands pipelines, because they're carrying this really, really toxic stuff, which yep. is going to leak. Like, it's just, yep. it's going to leak. I don't think and there's a, a single this stuff, one if it that gets, hasn't leaked. I mean, it's crazy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, if it's carrying tar sands and it gets in water, there's no way to get it out. Right. Um, it's extremely flammable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, it makes explosions really, really... Uh, 
inevitable. Right. <laughs> um, and like, I, I, I remember reading one report and there was like a pipeline that went directly underneath a school. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And they like pollute the air. They are linked to all sorts of like cancers and things like that. Like they are extraordinarily dangerous, not just in the long term, which is, you know, no longer the long term when it comes to climate change. Um, but they're dangerous in the immediate term, like, and there's a reason that they find themselves going through indigenous lands almost like with laser sharp yep. precision. Because they know, you know that they'll be able to get around certain laws and that they can lock. Th- I mean, it's it's really gross. Like, you just would not I see su- this yeah. happening in like a white suburban neighborhood. Um. No way in the world. <laughs> no way in the world. Yeah. And, you know, it's also like we keep hearing people say that wind and solar is not proven energy or, or not proven infrastructure or not proven technology. And this is actually, if anything, this is disproven. I feel like the Keystone pipeline is like a really good example of this. Um, it, that This pipeline was protested for years, years. Yeah, and it's then, probably the most famous pipeline by name. Yeah. Actually, Obama said, okay, we're not building this. And one of the first things that Trump did when he got into office was reverse that and tell them to go ahead and build it. It had a massive leak. And then on top of that, they fucking lied about the size of the leak. And it ended up being 10 times bigger than what they had said it was. It leaked about 383,000 gallons of oil. That is insane. That's insane. Mm. And, you know, of course, like all the people that have been protesting it for the years leading up to that were like, yeah, this is exactly why, you know. Um, so, yeah, they, they have bad records, these things. So anyway, in uh, Western Canada, British Columbia, there is um, a, an area in British Columbia that would be sort of like the natural route for a lot of tar sands oil and natural gas pipelines, but it goes through indigenous territory and they have built residences purposefully right in the pathway of where a pipeline would go because <laughs> they're like, yeah, no, that's not <laughs> happening here. Um, and there's been a few that have been shut down, but then this one company called TC Energy has been pushing forward with a natural gas pipeline that would run through this territory. And apparently on um, New Year's Eve 2019, the British Columbia Supreme Court granted an injunction to the company, which barred members of the indigenous tribes from obstructing work on this. It's called the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline. And the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Mounties, were authorized to enforce the order, but no one knew when they would show up. So they were so they basically said, yes, police, you can clear protesters from this land even though that's totally in violation of the land treaty between the Wet'suwet'en and the Canadian government. So then they did show up in February. Um, That's when we all started hearing about it, basically, when the police showed up, because they showed up in pretty large numbers. They started clearing people. And that's when, like, you started to see a a lot of international news outlets start to pay attention. They were arresting protesters and tribal chiefs, and they were detaining journalists, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, But right on on time, right? Right, exactly. Like, not not unexpected. Um, And then... 
you did see, you know, you saw it was interesting because initially in the early stories about this, a lot of the um, international press and especially a lot of like the Canadian national press were really focused on the economic impact it was having for these the indigenous tribes to be blocking like they were not just blocking access to their land. They were also blocking train like train lines from you know, from getting to their land because they wanted to really like shut down the construction of this pipeline. And so you were seeing people kind of complaining about like this having an, an, a negative economic impact on the whole country. <laughs> and um, because and then that's had the this... top priority. Yeah, exactly. Of course. But then you right. had this um, kind of a similar thing that happened with with Standing Rock. I feel like you had Unicorn Riot doing all of these um, regular updates and doing a great job of sort of on the ground reporting. Oh, unicorn and riot. Then, yes. And then here you had this group called Ricochet, which is kind of a similar deal where they're fairly small, they're indie, they're crowdfunded, and they have been all over this, um, sending reporters all the time. Um, and then they have this one indigenous reporter named Jerome Turner who actually got detained himself. And he wrote this really great and kind of chilling uh, essay about it that I'm going to read from here. No children are permitted to be on the territory until the situation is resolved. The danger of being forcibly removed hung in the air as the first reports of RCMP vehicles leaving Houston came in. From first-hand accounts I would hear later, I know police arrived and moved in on the site at kilometer 39 without much warning. One land defender was in a locked vehicle off the road with a radio, transmitting what she was seeing. None of what I heard over the radio was easy to hear. They're taping the window. I don't know if it's to prevent me from seeing or to break it. They're smashing the window. Then silence. I can't go into what happened at 39 kilometer because I wasn't there, but six land defenders and two journalists were arrested very quickly. What part of the injunction did they break? Why were media personnel detained? Okay, so what's happening with this now? Is the protest still going on? It is still going on. So there's been some interesting developments in the last few days where the government in British Columbia is starting to negotiate with the tribes and actually has been very clear to say that they want to negotiate the overall land treaty. So apparently there's been some kind of ongoing issues about solidifying, you know, rights within the land treaty for the indigenous tribes and making sure that like this isn't an issue that just keeps coming up every time someone wants to build a pipeline. So that's mm -hmm. cool. Like they are like, okay, let's solve the bigger issue. But it's mm -hmm. really funny because all the papers were like, you know, problem solved, like protest over. And all the indigenous groups on their social media were like, the protest is not over. Like, right. we've just started having conversations. Right. You know, they're kind of like, we don't trust these people. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> well, fuck, of course they don't. Exactly. Exactly. But I do think it's a good reminder for especially like those of those of us who are sitting in the U.S., kind of being like oh no you know we might end up with like a president who doesn't get it yeah that like you know the political system isn't the only way to change things right right you can also change <sighs> that's hard you know chain yourself to some shit no i'm just <laughs> kidding <laughs> 
<laughs> it's or, actually really, yeah. you know, what's really scary is that um, there are a bunch of states passing these uh, laws to criminalize protest, and it's mostly the, the um, pipeline states that are doing yeah. this. Yeah. And then you're seeing, like, actually in July, there's there are these two women who um, were arrested. They're, they turned a valve on a pipeline in – they were in Iowa, but it was the um, the Dakota Access Pipeline that, like, started in – I think it's South Dakota and then it goes down. Anyway, they were arrested and initially they were saying, um, I mean, they kind of like outed themselves. They were like, yeah, whatever, come and get us. Like, we're going to use a climate necessity defense, which is like, you mm-hmm. know, um, which has actually worked in a couple of um, of cases. But then they ended up getting, they were charged federally as like yeah. eco-terrorists. So now they're facing a mandatory minimum of 10 years if they're convicted. Um, oh, my gosh. That's, like, pretty serious stuff there. It um, is. It is. Yeah. But that that also makes me think of, like, what's going on in, like, a lot of these communities that they're choosing. And I read this article a little while ago. Um, it was called A Pipeline Runs Through Southern News Deserts. Um, yeah. It was in the Columbia Journalism Review about how in a lot of these places where, you know, these protest laws are coming down, but pipelines mm-hmm. are going in, um, the newspapers have disappeared. And that yeah. allows the fossil fuel industry to just completely, literally control the narrative. Um, yep. And I wanted to read an excerpt from that because it, it really gave me chills. The counties along the route are some of the most rural and economically depressed parts of the U.S., in a region that is historically reliant on extractive fossil fuels. In North Carolina, seven of the eight counties the proposed pipeline would run through are predominantly black. These places lack consistent, informative local coverage of energy, justice, and the environment because of the declining number and resources of print news outlets, shifting the balance of news sources toward expanding corporate media monopolies. The areas are also overlooked by national media, which mostly parachute in to cover major news updates or catastrophes if they need a tie-in to President Trump's policies, a dynamic that can perpetuate inaccurate stereotypes about these places. The absence leaves ample space for powerful campaigns by Duke and Dominion, the pipeline's developers and buyers of its natural gas, as well as industry-aligned lobbyists and politicians to shape the pipeline narrative. Yep. This is a huge problem right now. I think there's yeah. just like no local climate accountability. And these guys, I mean, the thing is, the thing that I think people don't realize is that there's literally no battle too small for the fossil fuel industry to get involved in. Like, No, those, because there's no petty. profit too small. Oh, my God. They will get involved in like the smallest issue, like a tiny wind farm proposed in like a rural county somewhere. They will show up. So Right, because they have like, the money. Exactly, exactly. So the fact that, you know, the environmental movement tends to be outmatched on the local front in terms of just bodies and money, um, and then throwing in the the fact that there are so many of these news deserts now, it really, Mm -hmm. there's nothing holding these guys accountable at that level. Mm -hmm. Actually, there was a story in... um, energy wire i want to say about the the county that i grew up in which happens to be the fastest warming county in the lower 48 states ventura county oh, wow 
Yep. And it's, you know, people forget that California is a big time oil state. Uh, We have tons of oil wells and a lot Mm -hmm. of them are getting old. And in Ventura County in particular, there are a bunch of oil wells that the company um, who owns them, which is a subsidiary of um, Occidental, Mm-hmm. They are going to have to cap these wells and take care of a bunch of environmental remediation in the next couple of years, which is like billions of dollars. And they've been trying to get out of it every which way. And so in the last uh, board of supervisors election in the county, which this is tiny ass county. Right. And these guys spent over a million dollars trying to sway voters in a board of supervisors county board of supervisors election (laughs) just because if they can get one like pro oil person on that board then they can delay having to like clean up their shit for another few years Um, (sighs) yeah yeah Yeah, it's gross anyway on that cheery (laughs) note uh... (laughs) we always end on a cheerful note don't we yeah, that is kind of depressing. Um, what did y'all do for standout pieces? <laughs> actually, they weren't as depressing okay. as you might think. Great. Well, actually, they were. <laughs> <laughs> but they were well-written. So, yeah. But they were well And by standout piece, we yes. mean just like something you love from recent memory. Yes. Yes. Totally. Totally. Yeah. For mine, as usual, it was like someone who gave me reporter envy because it was Malcolm Harris who somehow got himself like in the room with all of Shell's futurists when they were talking about how they're going to handle I could just see you in a room with a bunch of Shell people in like a trench coat and sunglasses. Being like, what? As the guest, Sarah, I'm going to let you go first. What's the climate piece that has stood out to you the most in kind of recent history? I'd say the most influential thing that I read is, this was last year, Mm -hmm. um, Jasper Burns wrote this piece for Commune, The Devil and the Green New Deal. And it really spelled out for me how technology is not going to save us and how all these different technologies, like wind power, solar power, they all use minerals. Right. They use materials. They involve transport. We need to stop competing because if we don't stop competing as nations, as companies, as, as individuals, yeah. we are not going to be able to undo this in any way at all. To meet the demands of the Green New Deal, which proposes to convert the U.S. economy to zero emissions, renewable power by 2030, there will be a lot more of these mines gouged into the crust of the earth. So he's talking about rare earth mines. That's because nearly every renewable energy source depends upon and frequently hard to access minerals. Solar panels use indium, turbines use neodymium, batteries use lithium, and all require kilotons of steel, tin, silver, and copper. The renewable energy supply chain is a complicated hopscotch around the periodic table and around the world. To make a high-capacity solar panel, one might need copper, atomic number 29, from Chile, indium, 49, from Australia, gallium, 31, from China, and selenium, 34, from Germany. 
Many of the most efficient direct drive wind turbines require a couple pounds of the rare earth metal neodymium, and there's <laughs> 140 pounds of lithium in each Tesla. Dotted with, quote, death villages where crops will not fruit, the region of Inner Mongolia where the Bayan Obo mine is located displays Chernobyl-esque cancer rates. But then again, the death villages are already here. More of them are coming if we don't do something about climate change. What matter is a dozen death villages when half the earth may be rendered uninhabitable? What matter, the gray skies over Inner Mongolia, if the alternative is turning the sky in endless white with sulfuric aerosols, as last-ditch geoengineering scenarios imagine? Moralists, armchair philosophers, and lesser evilists may try to convince you that these situations resolve into a sort of trolley car problem. Do nothing and the trolley speeds down the track towards mass death. Do something and you switch the trolley onto a track where fewer people die, but where you are more actively responsible for their deaths. When the survival of millions or even billions hangs in the balance, as it surely does when it comes to climate change, a few dozen death villages might seem like a particularly good deal, a green deal, a new deal. But climate change doesn't resolve into a single trolley car problem. Rather, it's a planet-spanning tangle of switchyards with mass death on every track. Shit, man. Um, yes. So I'll, I'll read you my paragraph. Mm. Um, okay, this is this this uh, shell story from New York Magazine. So it was like, you know, this guy basically got invited to some sort of like oh yeah, Malcolm Harris thing. Yes. Yeah. Since 2017, when I published a book about American millennials, I've had the occasional cold call from corporations to come talk about my work, all but one of which I've turned down. But last fall, the Shell Scenarios team, as in Royal Dutch Shell, one of the biggest oil companies in the world, offered me 2,000 pounds in exchange for a 15-minute talk and my participation in a group exercise. Its internal corporate think tank was holding a day-long conference about how generational change would affect the hopefulness projected in what the company calls the sky scenario, which it describes as a, quote, technically possible but challenging pathway for society to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement. I'm not a climate expert, but apparently I qualify as a generational whisperer, at least to Shell. And to talk to me about global warming, the giant energy conglomerate wanted to fly me to London from Philadelphia, business class. I warned them that I couldn't keep their money and asked if I'd need to sign an NDA. When they said no, I saw an opportunity to report on the oil company undercover while in plain sight without technically lying to anyone. It was too good to pass up. I said yes, then I emailed my editor. So he like goes to this thing and he goes on and talks about how basically they're like, how do we continue economic growth while making people think that we're acting on climate change? Which I'm like, yes, that is their entire strategy and it right. always will be. Like, stop believing that they're going to do anything. This idea that suddenly right. companies then, are going to turn into like empathetic people. Right. And then is, like when our, you know, when politicians are just like go along with this. Okay, fine. I forgive you for doing a show without me. Dude, you did a whole show without me. I know, but I missed you. <laughs> I missed you too. I really did. Okay. Well, I'm glad for the next few shows, at least we'll be together. How's your quarantine going? I mean, I'm just really glad I have a lot of booze in this house. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I have some on order. Like, don't judge me. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah. Um, and I kind of feel like I have no excuse but to read all the great climate writing that's out there because it's gotten to be a whole lot. Yeah, it really has. And our readers can curl up with all the readings from this episode, too, which are posted in our show notes and on Twitter. You can find us there at Real Hot Take. Right. And you can find me at, at Mary Heckler and Amy is at Amy Westervelt. Uh, Sarah, who co-hosted this week, is at Sarah Loves Callie. And that's Sarah with an H. Um, big thank you to her for joining Amy and keeping the dudes in the conversation to a minimum. <laughs> yes. And please send your climate storytelling questions to Hot Takes. That's Hot Takes, plural, at criticalfrequency.org. And a little tip, try to keep them short, <laughs> folks. We know there's a lot to say, but there's also a lot that can be edited, y'all. <laughs> I got another y'all, another y'all. I'm like on a roll here. Um, <laughs> okay, and a reminder that if you like the show, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. Um, it really helps us to reach new listeners. Um also, like, if the profanity in the show bothers you, you cannot listen to it. Totally. Yeah. 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 It's really not um, necessary. I feel and like, I say that, like we use the word yeah. fuck in a lot of our titles, so you know what you're getting into, y'all. Also, like, I don't feel like we cuss that much. Yes. And I think the thing that, like, makes the cursing more, like, audible in our show is the fact that we don't have Adam's apples. That is um, true. That and is true. you know what? If that bothers you... Go fuck yourself. <laughs> and on that note, we'll talk to you all in a couple weeks. <laughs> all right. Stay safe, everybody. Bye. Hot Take is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. The show is reported and written by Mary Hegler and me, Amy Westervelt. Our mixer is Tyler Morissette. You can find Hot Take wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at The Real Hot Take. And leave us a reading or review wherever you're getting the show. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. sip of aged rum right now what you didn't tell me you started drinking already <laughs> what I the feel like fuck it's, really it's afternoon on a saturday okay bitch no take <laughs> a second i'm drinking too i'm going to get a drink too <laughs> <laughs>